GBC Podcasts, local voices on demand. Hello, thanks for listening to the Gibraltar Today podcast. I'm Jonathan Scott. Do we refer to her as the next ombudsman? Ombud? Ombudsperson? Or ombudswoman? Wendy Cumming will join us, the current and outgoing president of the Gibraltar General and Clerical Association. How easy or difficult is it for young people to find a place to live? We speak to Aidan Montero, who's a director at the estate agents Savills. But first, with the latest on the fire in a skip on the 23rd story at the very top of an unoccupied and unfinished Hassan Centenary Terraces block, here's Kellyanne Borge, who's not only the producer of Gibraltar today, she also lives close to where that fire broke out on Wednesday night. So it was around 9.30 and we heard one siren, which sounded like a, a police car, which of course isn't uncommon. But then that was very quickly followed by another and then another. And then the sirens changed. So we thought, hang on a minute, is that an ambulance? Um, so we quickly went to our balcony to kind of see what was happening. And you could see other residents in the area also doing the same, just wondering, you know, it's quite an alarming sound to hear so many different sirens at once. I spotted about six units and they were kind of gathering around the back of Rezzo, around the estate, of course, Hassan Centenary Terraces, blocking off the beach and access to Easton. Um, and then, of course, our very competent team here in the newsroom were working on it uh, from Broadcasting House and they quickly determined that it was a fire. Always uh, rather scary to hear of a fire in Gibraltar, but especially so when it's in a high-rise building. Uh, we know the blaze was on the 23rd floor. It's an unfinished, unoccupied building at Hassan Centenary Terraces. But of course, at first we weren't sure which block it was. Originally, they, they reported that it was the 18th floor. So I'm sure for people who who know family or friends in the area, there might have been quite a bit of concern as to where the fire actually uh, was. But luckily it was on the unfinished building on the top floor. And the latest we've heard from the Deputy Chief Fire Officer Matthew Bias is that it's suspected it was caused by a disregarded cigarette end which blew into some wooden shavings in a skip at the top of the tower block. So the Fire and Rescue Service will continue with this investigation, but this is the latest from the Deputy Chief Fire Officer. We deployed three appliances, a crew of 12, and on arrival it was difficult to ascertain what the nature of the fire was because of the heights of the building and access to the top. Being a building that is under construction, most of the systems that you usually find in a normal building are not still uh, finished or commissioned. So it was difficult and, and arduous for us to wait all the way up to the top floor. But once we reached the, the top floor, the forward commander established that it was a skip on, on fire and to be more specific, the shavings of wooden cuttings that were on fire. So the investigation has continued today just to establish that that is in fact the case. We waited till daylight this morning. We went on site with the factories inspectors, the health and safety officers, because obviously it's a building under construction, so it's an element of, of fire safety and uh, health and safety as well. And we've determined that the cause of the fire might have been a disregarded cigarette end because it's a designated smoking area, but obviously being so windy up there, it's blown into the wooden shavings. The Deputy Chief Fire Officer Matthew Bayer speaking to our news editor Christine Vasquez just a short while ago. And last night, the RGP, when the fire broke out, it declared a major incident while assessments were being carried out. This wasn't due so much to the size of the fire, but more importantly because of the 
the where it was on the top of a very high building and to ensure that no one was in the building. And of course, after the Grenville tragedy in 2017, uh, we do know that an extensive safety review was carried out on high-rise buildings on the rock. And after that review, the GFRS gave Hassan Centenary Terraces a thumbs up. So the development has all the necessary safety spaces, wet risers on every floor, fire safety doors, smoke extractors, smoke detectors, sprinkler systems. It even boasts an evacuation alert system, which allowed the fire service to interact with each individual apartment separately, which is quite impressive. But of course, that's for the completed buildings, not for the ones that are still under construction. So uh, it was a, a massive challenge for the GFRS crew that uh, there was only 12 of them on shift, which is quite a small team. Uh, for such a large emergency and there has been praise on social media for them Uh, tessa says well done to the firefighters police and ambulance crew rosina says great job firefighters and frederick pointing out that the gfrs risks injury to keep us all safe a service that goes above and beyond thank you for all that you do just some of those uh, just some of a few comments on our our social media pages good stuff so um it was worrying but thankfully Mm -hmm. not as bad as as we initially thought it Mm -hmm. could be uh and um and we were hearing there some of the details of the fire safety spec at hassan centenary terraces and i remember ros astengo did Mm -hmm. a very good report with colin ramirez the chief fire uh, officer um some months back and it's on our youtube if anybody wants to to sort of refresh be reassured uh, and be reassured yeah. if you if you're if you're living there or if you've got a relative there, there there are some impressive measures in place uh to um counter the fact that it is or there are such tall buildings there yeah um uh, but i suppose the specific thing that we heard matthew bias talk about there is that it's an unfinished building and therefore uh, those fire uh, safety systems aren't yet in place um, so, but it, impressively, it, it was uh, a put challenge. out within minutes, which I think is yeah um, to be applauded. <laughs> but of course, if if anyone uh, saw it, if they're a witness to it, we'd love to hear your experience. Perhaps you are already moved in or doing up your flat in Hassan Centenary Terraces. I saw some lights on in the block. I'm sure it must have been the, quite the scary. Neighboring one, no? The neighbouring ones, those that are already kind of moving in or or still working on their flat. So I'm sure you kind of had a front row seat uh, to the blaze last night. So we're all ears and would love to hear from you. Gibraltar Today with Jonathan Scott. The president of the Gibraltar General and Clerical Association, Wendy Cumming, is going to be the next public public services ombudsman or ombuds person, um, making her the first ever woman in the post locally. Ms Cumming will take over from Ron Corum at the start of May and a nominations process for the post of GGCA president will now be started. She joins us now in the studio. Good afternoon, Ms Cumming. Congratulations on your appointment as the next, what, do we, what, what would you like to be referred to as, the ombudsman, ombud? Ombudsperson or ombudswoman? <laughs> well, I think that it's, um, if I my memory serves me well, it's like a Scandinavian term and it's gender neutral. So you, I can be ombudsman. Okay. Um, so uh, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts upon accepting that role? Well, honestly, um, I w- I'm still a bit shell-shocked because it's all happened very quickly. I mean, I was, uh, you know, had some, you know, suggestion of it like a week ago and then it was only yesterday that, you know, the offer came to me in, in writing. So um, to be honest, it, it is a bit of a shock. It's not something that, um, you know, has been on the cards for a while. So um, very excited, really very excited. I think that it's, uh, you know, facing a new chapter in my working life, um, you know, looking forward to it immensely. 
But I think that a lot of work needs to be done these next three months because obviously I want to make sure that, you know, I leave the GGCA in, you know, as good a shape as possible for the new leadership. So you, it's a direct appointment by the Chief Minister. How would you characterise your relationship with Fabian Picardo as the president, outgoing president of the GGCA? Um, well, um, you know, to say that there has been, you know, unbroken amity for the last, you know, 11, 12 years um, would be uh, <laughs> would be wrong to say it. But um, I think that we've navigated, you know, necessary conflict as well as we've been able to. Um, I think that, um, you know, we ca- we've, we've come to a position where there's, um, you know, mutual respect, even though often, um, you know, maybe we've had differing views on things. And, you know, it, it's just, uh, you know, an aspect of trade unionism. You know, you cannot be always, you know, having a friendly relationship with, with an employer when you are representing the workforce. It's just a reality that we've navigated the best we've been able to all this time. We've had a, a number of, um, of of our followers on social media suggest that uh, the government has done this before. It has taken somebody who is a trade unionist and given them a job, effectively making that trade union weaker. Uh, among them, Nicholas, uh, who says that's one way of killing uh, a union. What would you say to, to that train of thought? Well, I think that, um, you know... Y- a union is not the leader of the union. The, the the union is the solidarity between members. And I think that very, very, you know, very clearly to me, if I look back on the last 12 years, the areas where we've been able to be successful is where the members have banded together and have been on the same page and have acted together, um, you know, in, their, in the interests of the collective. So, for example, um, I am disposable to the GGCA. What is not disposable to the GGCA is the solidarity between the members of the GGCA. So, um, obviously, I'm not saying that, you know, um, you need to have a trade union leader that um, believes in workers' rights and has a little bit of courage because you need that, I think, in this this role. You need to have the Um, stomach for the fight. Yeah, courage is the only thing you need. And, And courage and not to be afraid of people in positions of authority. That's what you need. If you have that, you can do the job. And an ability to articulate and defend your position. Well, yes. Oh, yes, that, also that. Yes. But, you know, mo- most people are relatively articulate. Um, and I think that, um, you know, your ability to kind of come on here on the press and, and follow your argument develops over time because um, you, with, with the exposure to interviews and, you know, media appearances, etc. So that's something that can, and, and a lot of these things you can develop you can develop your your experience, you can develop your knowledge of the public service, you can develop your knowledge of trade unionism. What you cannot develop is, um, I think, that what needs to happen from the, what you need from the first off is that sense of fear, a little bit of fearlessness, a little bit of courage, a little bit of, um, you know, the, the, the sense that you, you speak your truth no matter to who it is. Um, I think that if you have that and you, you know, and you're up for a very exciting job, um, then I think you're fit for the role. And uh, when you look at the potential uh, applicants for the position of president of the Gibraltar General and Clerical Association, do you do you feel that there are, are strong people there who will be able to pick up the mantle where where you leave it in uh, in the coming months? In the GGC membership, there are so many. Um, super qualified, able and intelligent people in the membership that, of course, 
there is more than enough uh, uh, scope for a new team. I think the issue really is, is, is there enough willingness? That it is to me, you know, because it, having the qualifications, but you need to have the willingness to do it. So I think that, um, you know, that's the that's the, the, the bit of, of, of somebody saying, well, look, um, you know, I'm going to take this role on and I'm going to do my best with it. Um, and people knowing that, you know, it, 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 there's an element of conflict that comes with it. But I think that with the conflict comes the ability to speak to a lot of people. Every day is different. Um, you know, you, you learn so much about how Gibraltar works. Um, you have a platform for saying things that you feel are important to our community. So it does come. There are, you know, I think that people are very aware of the cons of the job, but not of the pros. And there are many pros. Okay. Um, and if we go back to the sort of main themes of your time as president of the General and Clerical Association, uh, which which is not not yet up, but uh, but you know, if if we sort of just look at some of the main themes, uh, you've talked about uh, privatization, non consultation from on behalf of the government. These these are your words, and uh, generally in society, an unfair distribution of wealth. And you have accepted that that um, those themes have given rise to greater militancy uh, by the trade unions in recent years. Is that is that a fair um, summary? Yes, I, that is a, a fair summary. It's 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 a little bit difficult to kind of um, take these things out of the actual kind of disputes that they rose from. But um, definitely, I think that one of the one of the biggest issues for me is when you live in a socialist um, society, um, fair distribution of wealth. And um, for me, that always um, comes down to advocating for the entry grades, um, which I've always wanted to do. I've always had issues with, in particular, in the civil service, the AA and the AO grades. Um, I think that there's been a lot of work put in. But unfortunately, um, one of the issues there is that because it's entry grade, because it's clerical, um, sometimes members, again, the issue of solidarity amongst members, sometimes members don't want to engage with the trade union. Sometimes they find that difficult. So that's why um, sometimes issues can't be progressed as much as perhaps I would have liked. Okay, and if we look at the uh, at your wish list from the general election, um, th th there were a number of things that you asked an incoming government to, to deal with, among them the issue of the administrative assistance, um, which you sort of have uh, you know implicitly referred to there. But we, we did a whole interview on that, so if we can move on from that, you, you also asked uh, about uh, to, to end the instability for Britannia work, and obtain a commitment to transition the workforce from private sector to a government-owned company. Um, what's the, the latest on that? Well, the latest on that one is that um, we had a couple of productive meetings uh, post-election in relation to the Britannia um, membership. Um, and, you know, there hasn't been, um, you know, an agreement to kind of move them from private sector to public sector but one of the things that that has happened is is the opening of the opening of a certain public service um vacancies to britannia workers as kind of in within the internal recruitment so i think that that was something that uh the membership had it was a long held aspiration for the membership a long held um certainly i i remember first coming in and people saying uh, i think that 
queremos aplicar y más a la, a la basura. You know, so uh, for me, I think that was a wonderful thing coming out of uh, number six that day and, and knowing that, you know, that could have happened for them. I think that was a wonderful thing. So I think that maybe that hasn't been achieved, but something that's been that w that's very valuable to the membership was achieved that day. So quite happy with that one, to be honest. Okay, um, we've got a, a comment here um, for you, uh, Miss Cumming, and I know that uh, you know that you've you've done enough media interviews to not be put off by a comment. Uh, so it's a difficult one, is it? <laughs> uh, potentially a difficult one, but it's along the same lines okay. as, 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 as the question I've put to you. But Sebastian's language is perhaps a bit stronger. Sebastian says it's a it's a sad it is sad to see another trade unionist trade unionist jump ship to use Sebastian's words to the other side no wonder she hasn't been very vociferous on some issues like the cost of living crisis um well i mean look everybody is free to have an opinion on how much of an activist i've been or haven't been and you know i'm i'm happy to accept a range of opinions on that but um to say that is actually um you know the, the time span i this has happened in a week so you know whatever level of activism um that has been you know put forward by the gdc has had nothing to do with this or at least you know moving forward you can accuse me of that but certainly not for a week ago you know um we um had a bgm in december um so we were voted in the same committee was voted in by the members for another two years so i had a plan moving forward for the two years and the cost of living was something that um, I had, in, you know, a large number of interviews on. Um, and unfortunately, that was a, a position that, 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 you know, unions took on. I was asked by the membership to to ballot on the Unite position. I balloted on the Unite position. Uh, I, I felt prematurely, but I was pushed by the GGCA membership uh, to do that. We balloted and then I was locked into supporting the Unite position. So we were in supporting the Unite position and Unite, I think, made a... Uh, a, 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 a decision with their memberships. They also balloted, and it was a decision that you know it was practical. Look, when 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 there's very little money in the pot, there's very little to go round. So um, you know, uh, and and that's pretty much it. You know, would I have liked a, a, a massive cost of living? Look, when there was a pay cap um, on the cost of living, and there was an eighty eighty five million surplus in the budget, I had people out of number six, and and we fixed it. But where there's a deficit, you cannot take the same attitude. It's it's you know it's just the the economic realities that we're facing as a community. So uh, the offer came to you a week ago, and and just to, to uh, one final question on this issue: this is not this offer uh, of uh, you know to to work as an ex ombudsman isn't the result of a cozying up to to number six. Um, uh, cozying up, I'm. <laughs> Look, at the end of the day, um, you know, I'm moving to a new role. I'm very excited about it. But um, there's the financial incentive for me is very small because I think it's an, an extra 1,500 a year that I'm going to be earning more. So um, for me, this is I've given my best for 12 years. I mean, this job has been very, very intense, very fulfilling, but very, very intense. And now I'm welcoming a new role. Um, you know, as a person, I am entitled also to move on with my career. Um, you know, and maybe I think that for for trade unionists going forward and um, for the GGC perspective, sometimes it would be good to consider this position more towards the end of co your career rather than at the middle of your career, because it is, uh, you know, uh, quite intense and you have to be prepared to kind of 
Take on the fight. Take on With the fight, and, and it's very it's very exciting, very fulfilling, but also can be quite intense. So honestly, I'm not sure that from a, the perspective of my personal kind of well being and health, to for people to think that I could honestly do this for another nine years, I think it's asking for a bit too, asking for a bit too much. I'm sure that it uh, takes a lot out of you, the job. Um, one final question. I, th- I think we're, we'll, we'll just squeeze in this one more, uh, Miss Cumming. But um, after the general election in October, lots of civil servants were moved. Uh, from the perspective of the GGCA, was that disruptive? And, and how has that process gone? Well, um, I've had... Uh, th- this goes back to, you know, a long-held conversation that I had with HR on the issue of, of clerical grades and transfers. Originally, I was um, I was told that they were going to kind of specialise uh, from HEO up, that they were going to specialise posts, and, that they, and, and the way that I, it was presented to me was, this is a really good thing because we're going to focus on in-house training bespoke to each department, so there's going to be an element, and they called it tubing, of tubing. And to be honest, at that point, I was kind of sold on the idea that each department would have specialized training, that people would be able to get on, that they would offer courses. So there was an element of specialization in, in each grade when, when, when certain posts would come out. That was accepted until the point that some then became more specialized than others. And then so when, when, um, when just after the elections, when I had a big conversation with HR and I said, I'm not accepting ever again any specialising of any type of cleric of any type of clerical post, and um, I put that in writing. I think I was very, you know, I I I, I, th- I think I said it, you know, because at the end of the day, then when you come back and then and then there's wholesale transfers. We as a trade union, we cannot get be involved in transfers because every clerical post is transferable. So um, you know, there's there's a limit to how much a trade union can react with that. But at the same time, then there's no aspect of tubing if you're going to be able to transfer large numbers of people, you know, with, with short notice um, in that way. So it was disruptive in short? Well, um, it, either you have generic posts that you can transfer easily or you have specialised posts that you can't transfer easily. What you can't have is a midpoint between the two because unfairness creeps in there. All right. Um, before we let you go, uh, Debs thinks that, uh, well, she hopes that you are able to bring the role complete impartiality, uh, thinking about your your taking over of the office of the Public Service Ombudsman uh, in a few months' time. Debbie thinks uh, that she hopes for true impartiality to support social justice. The community of Gibraltar needs you, uh, she says. John thinks that it's great news. Uh, Tyreen says... Congratulations, Wendy. You definitely deserve it. On Radio Gibraltar and on GBC Television, Gibraltar Today with Jonathan Scott. Are you thinking of buying, renting or selling a property in 2024? What are the main things that you need to consider? What's the market doing, um, the residential market? Well, Aidan Montero is a director at the estate agent Savills and joins us now. Uh, thank you for doing so, Aidan. And um, tell us, uh, for young people, you're, you're a young person yourself. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jonathan. <laughs> you're you're very you. welcome. Uh, so, so as a young person, you'll, you'll speak to, to friends and, and clients, um, young people trying to access the market for the first time or perhaps the second time. What sort of things, how are those conversations going at the moment? Well, look, actually, to be completely, completely frank with you, um, it, you have to get in as soon as, as, soon as you can. Um, and it really just depends um, on what, what level of the market you're looking at. Now, obviously, if, if, if you're young and you're trying to get into the property market, then you would ideally 
start with with looking at affordable housing. So I do think um, that once you explore that avenue, um, it's 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 rather important that um, that they get a good understanding of of costs involved as well. Because when you do enter the market, um, you have to balance out whether you're go whether you're coming into the property market and and whether you're renting or whether you're actually buying. And that really does fall down to affordability. Um, my advice is always um, to assess your finances and then get a very good understanding of, of, of what's important to you and your lifestyle and then enter the market appropriately. Um, the affordable uh, housing scheme is great for young people if we're discussing young people. It does give them um, an opportunity, a foundation to be able to then go on to resale in years to come, in 5, 10, 15 years to come even, which we've had that, for example, with the Westside District back in the 90s. And so a lot of these people entered through that system and have, have actually done very well. Of course, Gibraltar with, with, um, with no capital tax gains when reselling. It's a good opportunity for them to then be able to move on to the next phases of their lives. Because they manage to, to keep a lot of the money, of the profit that they make on that property. Correct. And um, so, so you've talked about sort of uh, ideally what a young person would do, but um, how um, how much power do they have in this market? Because uh, I, I hear from a lot of young people who are finding it difficult to access the market at, at the prices that, that are the going rates. So, um, in respect to prices, yes, of course, it would be difficult for for your young average person, um, which is which is receiving a, a rather average income, say, um, to to enter the market. Their best avenue would obviously be to go down the affordable housing route. Now, I myself, I'm young, I'm local, um, have have been frontline with dealing with many of these of these buyers, which have come to me and said, Aidan, what do I do? Do I purchase and I wait for the, for the next lot of affordable housing? Do I purchase? I mean, I've been doing this now for 10 years. So I've, I've helped a lot of applicants. I'm not a financial advisor, but I've helped a lot of applicants, buyers, um, come into the market. And where they go down the route of affordable housing or they go down the route of purchasing on the open market are two completely separate things. The open market does give you the opportunity to A, let the property in the future, so that automatically does become an asset. The open market does also allow you to um, to sit on on an asset which appreciates in value uh, rather quickly. Now, obviously, we've had the surge back in 2022 where we saw prices go up up to 30 percent on prime product. Uh, we saw that going up to even 50 and 60 percent. However, we're focusing really on 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 our local audience per se. Then um, then that's a decision that they have to make. An example. You have a young couple which um, which 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 can afford their deposit. That's very important. Firstly, they can afford to go into a mortgage. They assess their their their, their finances. No one plans to lose their job. No one plans to get redundant, but can afford it there and then. Do you then grab your your average property of say two to three bedrooms within the with within the the restricted market at four thousand a meter, which would come to say three hundred to four hundred thousand, or they acquire a one-bedroom apartment, say, in a development which does offer you amenities such as pools, terraces, additional parking, bigger terraces. So that's, that's something which, which a young person has to balance out, whether they're looking at, at, at a property and thinking, well, space is important, we're young, uh, we plan to bring children, we want to have the space, or whether they go down the open market route with their commercial hats on and think, well, actually, I'll lock myself into a one-bedroom apartment for the next four to five years, and then as life starts evolving and things start happening, I can then resell 
the uplift is substantially higher as opposed to your average 5 to 7% growth, which we've had pre-2022 on affordable housing, which in the open market, we've had approximately a 30 to 40%. So you can make in, a bigger step on the open market if you manage to access it in the first place? Of course. Okay. And uh, and I suppose either way you need to be patient um, because uh, the affordable housing schemes, you know, you, you, people sign up for, for the waiting lists and, and then, you know, it, it, it's a question of waiting for those properties to come online. So yeah. we've had the first lot of Hassan Centenary terraces uh, come online. The second is, is currently under under construction how much of an impact does that have on um on move how many movements result from that first phase of hassan centenary terraces coming online so um we've definitely um we've definitely noticed that a lot of 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 restricted properties i.e montague gardens uh beach Tree terrace monscalpe etc um have been coming to the market consequently because they need to sell on to be able to 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 move on to that we have also had, uh, because of the weight, obviously, we've had a lot of applicants which have been very fortunate enough so to people, be able... people selling from Montague to go to Hassan? No. Just to give you an example, yes. Perhaps they have spouses which they've met later on in their lives and so they sell together, etc. But we have also had instances um, whereby uh, those particular applicants, those buyers, um, have been very fortunate um, in their position financially and have not had to wait so for the equivalent, they could still be purchasing within the open market. But of course, it's, it's, it really comes down to their finances and their situation, you know? Yeah. So when, when, um, when somebody is looking um, at what's available on the market, um, they'll, you know, they'll access different estate agents' um, websites uh, and, and they'll notice that there are the prices per square meter can, can vary uh, a fair amount depending on the location and the development. Uh, how, what... Tell us a little bit about that, ver- you know, that variability. So over the, I mean, in, in, in the last 20 years, um, I've been very fortunate to, to have started 10 years ago. So I can give you a decade of, of, of really watching the market. But I can say that over the last 20 years, Gibraltar has really been evolving. 20 years ago, when you'd be looking at, for example, open market properties, prime apartments per se, you really only just had Ocean Village um, and Kings Wharf, say, and Queensway. And then if you'd be looking for a bit more space, gardens, a pool, a, a bigger terrace, you'd go and gravitate into the south area. So over the last 10 years, we've seen, we've seen substantial uh, off-plan properties uh, complete. There's much more inventory available. And what's happening is that Gibraltar is really now beginning to, to zone itself. We have different zones. So for example, you've got the east side. And within the east side, if, if you look at the growth that we've had in the east side, it's, it's tremendous. Um, and that has become a district in itself. Then you look at your north with, district. With, with much more still programmed, no? With, with east side with development. much more, and, much, much more. Um, then, for example, you'd gravitate, you'd gravitate down towards the north district, which is your Ocean Village area. That's also become another district within itself. Your west down to Queensway. And then you have the south, which you'd have larger houses or larger lateral apartments um, and so forth. And... Consequently, what has happened is that, of course, we have an average price per square meter. If we were to start from low to high, low on affordable housing at the moment, uh, with with current inventory, uh, which is currently on the market, would be in averages of around three and a half to five thousand a meter. But then, open market properties would usually start at around six thousand. So, to understand how pricing works, you have to look at it, and we're we're very fortunate that that we've had that growth um, in Gibraltar and and uh economy that we're able to now district and zone different areas for example the east side yes you have smaller smaller units 
um, with a higher price per square meter because they are smaller units. But your average two or three bedroom apartment could range from about 6,000 to 7,500 a meter. You pull down into Ocean Village, for example, which would be your north district, all that area, open market per se. Uh, is in the range of seven and a half up to nine and a half thousand a meter. Penthouses are coming up to around ten to even twelve thousand a meter. Then you pull down towards Queensway. Queensway is is really what a lot of our applicants would refer to as the Mayfair of of Gibraltar. Um, and prices there would start at around eight and a half up to even fifteen thousand a meter. If you were to be looking at the larger townhouses or penthouses, even. And then the south, the south has its has its it's it's a rather niche uh, niche market because you do have very large single level lateral apartments, but then you also have houses to compare to as well. And that does range usually around your eight to around ten thousand a meter. So what I'm coming to say is that Gibraltar is really um, is really now having having not just a general price per square meter on prime and affordable, affordable being roughly 4,000 to 5,000 meter and prime entry level at around 7,500 a meter. But we're able to now actually look at this, um, look at this market and really and really have different tiers to it. So sure. we have four tiers and that's the way that I like to look at it at, at least and study it. And town, I suppose, as well, no? Correct. Um, okay, Aidan, before we let you go, you, you, you teased at the opening of the programme uh, what impact the treaty could have. We're, we're almost out of time, but in a, in a line or two, if you can, um, when you think of the treaty and, and property in Gibraltar, what, what, do, you, what do you think? So um, we're finding that... Um, Firstly, it is very important that um, um, that we have a treaty. Um, at the moment, the way it stands, in order for us to attract foreign investment, um, it has been very difficult with interest rates um, creeping up that we had last year. It's been a hard year in property. Um, we also were grey-listed. That hasn't actually supported us either. Um, and then consequently, we're having to deal with the treaty and issues at the border, not having a free-flowing border. So if you were to have, for example, your Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which are retirees, and they come down into, in, in, into Gibraltar, um, they have issues to get through the border and they have to have a booking, for example. That has an effect on the economy, but also has an effect um, in, in all scales in, in, in respect to properties. So, I mean, I can say that at the moment we are definitely uh, working in an environment which is a buyer's market as opposed to a seller's market. All and right. sellers have to adapt to that. It's really important. Thanks for listening to those highlights from Gibraltar today. I'm Kelly M. Borge, the show's producer. We're live on Radio Gibraltar Monday to Friday from 1 to 2, getting behind the headlines. And you can catch up here whenever you like. Until next time, have a good one. GBC Podcasts. Local voices on demand.